Greetings. Welcome to White's Run Baptist Church Online. My name is Eric Newcomer, and it is my pleasure to speak to you today about Christocentric preaching. That's right, I said Christocentric preaching. So get used to this word Christocentric, uh, because it's going to be uh, very important. And all it simply means is Christ at the center. Christocentric. And so that means Christ being center of preaching. We're in Acts chapter 2 and we're continuing a series calling called Witnesses of the King. And this series is going through the book of Acts and following the disciples as they begin to spread the word of Jesus Christ after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. We'll be looking at a lot of great themes through this book. And one thing we'll be looking at very closely is what is it that the apostles are preaching early in the church? And how can we understand and apply that to the way we spread the gospel today? Because we know the truth of God does not change and that he does not change. The times change somewhat, but the nature of man also does not change. So there's much we can learn from the apostles as they preach. This week, uh, we're going to look at Peter's sermon, and we're going to look at it for a total of three weeks. We're going to see that preaching in the early church was Christocentric, that means Christ was at the center of it, and that it was biblical, that is, it used the, the Bible as its primary source material, and that it was commanding. And we're going to take a look at those three points of Peter's sermon in these coming weeks. Today, Christocentric. Now, what they're preaching in the early church was not. Now, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, so you can go there in your Bibles or in the uh, notes that go with this. We're going to begin in verse 14, go through verse 41. But what you'll notice is some things conspicuously missing from the preaching of Peter on this very first day of the proclamation of the church. And it is this. Some of the things that are missing is a focus on the benefits of the Christian life. You'll notice there's no talk of blessing, of you know any, any particular promises to claim or improvement to your lifestyle or anything like that. Now, there are a great many benefits to being a Christian, but that was not the focus here. The focus was also not on the demands of the Christian life or on the expectations of obedience of God in the Christian life. And indeed, there are expectations and there are principles by which a Christian ought to live. And indeed, true Christians do their best to live by them. But that is not the focus of the preaching. It does not focus on the felt needs or implied needs of the audience because it approaches uh, everyone is having a universal need of the forgiveness of sins. There is no mention of inviting Jesus into the heart, no mention of making him Lord of your life, no mention of a God-shaped hole in your heart that Jesus is going to come and fill. Those kind of elements were missing from Peter's sermon, as you'll see as we read it, because they are not biblical presentations of the gospel. And even though some of those things are true, to some extent, it is not the focus of what our proclamation ought to be. The gospel is the good news, of course, that Jesus came, was born of a virgin. He was fully man, fully divine. He proved himself with his teaching and the fulfillment of prophecy and the signs and wonders, lived a perfect, sinless life. Then he went to the cross and he died. The wrath of God was placed upon him in the place of sinners and in fulfillment of the scriptures. 
He rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scripture. He appeared to the disciples, as many as 500 at once. The gospel also includes the fact that he ascended into heaven where he is in session. He's still in control at the right hand of the Father. And he saves those who repent and trust in him alone for their salvation. And he gives them the promised Holy Spirit to empower a life that is pleasing to God and a life that proclaims the gospel in his power. And not all this content, you'll see, is in Peter's sermon. He does not expound on every one of these essential points of the gospel. But we see by Acts chapter 2, verse 40, as we will get to it and read it near the end of his sermon, is that what we have is a summary of his words, because it says, he, with many other words, he encouraged them. And so we do see that all these basics, however, are taught at some point in the book of Acts. And we know that all these elements are present in early creedal statements of the church in the first century. As we go through the letters and study the letters, we find certain elements and certain statements that are set aside in a special way as to suggest that these were memorized, that these were things that were commonly said in the early church. They're also attested to by writings outside the Bible, these things that were said. So there are some elements in, uh, in the preaching of the book of Acts that become very basic, very standard to all the church for all time. Now, there are some elements in our modern preaching that do not appear here, and that's because of the audience. Um, some things that we preach today do not appear in Peter's sermon because they're simply not biblical, <laughs> but many of the things are there because of his audience. Peter is preaching, according to Acts 2.5, he is preaching to devout Jews that were gathered in Jerusalem. And so these are people that are faithful enough, believing enough in the Jewish way to show up for the holidays that they were supposed to show up for. So they are there uh, for the day of Pentecost, some of them from the area, some from all these nations that are listed earlier in chapter 2. And so Peter can skip a lot of background that we today need to cover because we preach primarily to non-Jews, that is Gentiles. So today what I want you to do is we read this passage and go through it. I want you to look at the passage. I want you to observe how Jesus Christ is the central subject matter. It's not about the speaker. It's not about the audience. It is about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. So let's go to the scriptures together and read these verses. It begins here in verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And it was in the last, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. And then Peter continues, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. But Peter and the rest of the apostles uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom our Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, this is powerful, and it is amazing to see what God has done here on this day, this great proclamation of Peter, the conversion of 3,000 souls, and it was stunning. And our focus today is on the content of what Peter said. What were the things that he actually spoke of? What were his topics? Well, we can see it was truly Christocentric. He begins by answering the mocking that came. As people said, you know, all these people, they're all speaking these different languages. They're all excited and everything. Uh, they're obviously full of new wine. Well, he gets up and addresses that first. And then he speaks of the fulfillment of the prophet Joel concerning the Holy Spirit. We talked about those things last time. But then he focuses right in on Jesus Christ and he, he laser focuses on who he is and what he has done. The first thing he points out is that Jesus came and proved his identity. 
Jesus came and proved his identity. And this is seen very clearly in verse 22 when he says um, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Uh, as you yourselves know. So this was common knowledge. He's speaking to people that just 50 days earlier had probably been there in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Peter and the others had actually walked with Jesus. And as we walk with them, reading the Gospels, we're carried along with them. And he does these miracles. He teaches as one who has authority like no one else did. He causes the disciples to ask themselves the question, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They saw him turn water into wine and calm the sea and feed the multitudes and heal the sick, the lame, the blind, which no one had done before, and he even raised the dead. And not too long after, Jesus presses them for their opinion of his identity, and Peter speaks for them all when he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what proved it to John the Baptist. John the Baptist sent disciples to Jesus because John was in prison. He had to be wondering and hearing things about Jesus. And boy, the leaders are rejecting him and things are tough. And so he sends these disciples to Jesus and he, and they ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? And Jesus takes them around for the day and shows them all the miracles he was doing and then sends them back to John. And he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So this was the ultimate proof Uh, for John that indeed he was fulfilling these things by the signs and miracles and wonders. So the ultimate proof, of course, is that he died and rose again. (laughs) The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, of course, is the final, the icing on the cake, so to speak, of uh, all the acts that he did. The miracles continue as we read in the book of Acts And it becomes then the mark of a true apostle. The true signs of a true apostle were performed among you, Paul says to the Corinthian church, speaking of the signs and wonders done through him when he went there and preached the gospel. Now, many want to ask the question, why doesn't it continue today? Um, Well, they do continue today. Now, many of you are going to be shocked to hear me say that uh, because you know my position on this. The miracles continue today in written form, in the Word of God. They do. They live on in this written eyewitness testimony of those who were there and saw these things. But this isn't the same. Lies can be written, right? True. But remember, it's God who enlightens us to the identity of Jesus Christ or the Word of God that accounts the miracle. Look what happens when Jesus asked Peter, he says, you know, who do people say that I am? He asks all the disciples, actually. Uh, he says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And look at Jesus' very interesting response to him. After all the miracles they saw and all the things they heard him teach, here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Why are you blessed, Peter? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. So even with the signs and wonders, even with everything that Jesus did and taught, with the, the disciples, the apostles right there with him all the time, it still required the Father revealing this to him that he was the Christ. This wasn't Peter's great acumen or knowledge. Now there was faith exercised on the part of Peter for sure, but we see that this is attributed to the Father revealing it. Now, if the Father can reveal it to someone through the work of miracles, the Father can reveal it through the reading of the Word of God, reading the account of those miracles. God is just as able to bring someone to repentance. So we have the power of God to work with His Word. And, and if you think that God needs miracles to convince people of the gospel, you are lacking two things. Number one, you're lacking an understanding of the hardness of people's hearts. And number two, you're lacking an understanding of the power of God. Because I can assure you there are many who saw their sign, his signs and wonders and yet did not believe. How many people followed him across the sea after seeing him feed the multitude? And he says, you're only following me because you ate of the bread. And he begins to talk about how he was the essential element in a true spiritual life. How it was him alone that could save. And he started speaking of that in such strong language as to say, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. You have to take me all in order to have this life. And what happened to those people? Many of them turned away. Peter and the others who had some faith, they did not. And in fact, uh, Jesus kind of challenged them on it. You know, what are you still doing here? Peter says, where else are we going to go? Who else has the words of life? So miracles must cease. And they must cease because this is how the evil one will deceive many in the last days. In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, listen how it describes this lawless one that comes, this antichrist. It says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, miracles were clearly one way that God proved the identity of Jesus and the apostles. And this is a crucial point in sharing the gospel. But we dare not expect that today, for we have something even more sure. That is the Word of God. So what else uh, did we learn from this passage? We learned this, Jesus was crucified, and this is a basic truth that's central to the faith, that Jesus was crucified, second only to his resurrection in its importance. It's very difficult to separate the two, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Without one, there's not the other. But notice here in Acts 2.23, he says this about it. He says, um, he was delivered up by God according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then in he goes on to say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now he is speaking to the audience that we saw in Acts 2.5, faithful Jews, which were probably present at the previous feast when Jesus was crucified at the Passover 50 days prior. They may have been part of the crowds that were shouting, crucify him. And so he turns it right on them and says, you crucified. And that's the, the primary verb of this passage. You crucified him. And so this is a powerfully important or primary of this verse. 
he doubles down on this later in the passage in verse 36. You know, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He does it again in chapter 3, and it's done again in chapter 5. That indeed, he points it right at the audience. He says, you crucified him. And he was crucified by men. And so we see two great truths here in this single verse uh, that I want to point out to you for a moment. We're not going to dwell on this long, but there's seeming contradictory uh, from our perspective, these two great truths. But understand this, there are two truths here that you must hold on to unswervingly. And they're both contained in this verse. Now, they seem to contradict, but to God they do not. And as we grow and as we understand more and more, we'll be able to better resolve these things. But I want to show you these two absolute truths of the gospel that are contained here. First of all, God is absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely in charge. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This he will Peter will double down on this later in the book of Acts in chapter 4 in a very very strong way. All the all the disciples do. So he was delivered up according to the definite plan foreknowledge of God. The Christian life I challenge you this, is unlivable unless you have a God that is continually keeping the promise of Romans 8.28, that is to work all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is constantly fulfilling that verse for his people, like he fulfills it in the book of Genesis through Joseph, who was a type of Christ. And Joseph says at the end of all this, his brothers come to him kind of seeking forgiveness, hoping Jesus won't let them, or Joseph won't let them have it after uh, his father is deceased. And Joseph says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And so this is absolutely true. God is absolutely in charge. But look here, man is absolutely responsible. Just like Joseph says here, you meant it for evil. So what they did, they did by their will. They did it with evil intent in their hearts to sell Joseph into slavery and and fake his death toward their dad and everything else. But God meant it for good. Same thing we come back here to Acts chapter 2 for. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan for knowledge of God, but he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the two truths are this. God is absolutely sovereign, but man is absolutely responsible for what he does. Even though God delivered him up, it was by the hands of lawless men. They made real decisions, and those real decisions have consequences. Man has a real will. It's not an illusion. He's not a robot. Now, it is true that man is a slave to sin, but he is accountable for his actions consistently throughout Scripture. This is why we're told to repent. This is why we're told to choose whom we will serve. And this is why we are implored all the while to remain in the faith, to stay steadfast in all these things, because we truly do have a will. But God is truly in control. These two things are true. Read the verse, get comfortable with it, If he's less than sovereign, he's not God. And if man has no will of his own, God is not just in condemning him. 
Now, this crucifixion, of course, is the atonement that we speak of in the scriptures. So to focus on his crucifixion, the fact that Jesus was crucified, we want to say this, he's offered up to pay the price for sins. Now, Peter doesn't cover this here, at least in the summary that we have of what he had said, but he does mention the forgiveness of sins in verse 38. Peter says to them, as they say, what do we do about this? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so it would be an easy connection for his audience to make that would connect the death of Christ to the forgiveness of sins. The word delivered up that Peter used, uh, that Jesus was delivered up by God, suggests that he was offered, suggests that he was given as a sacrifice. We know that the Bible says clearly, Old Testament and New, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, no forgiveness of sins. And so the Jews knew this very clearly. It would be an easy connection for them to make. After this, the early church is dedicated to the apostles' teaching. And so this was no doubt covered then, as this comes into our theology right then in the beginning of the first century. So according to the plan of God and the schemes of men, Jesus was crucified but he did not stay crucified. And that is truly good news. He was raised from the dead. Acts 2.24, it says God raised him up. And it says even there in Acts 2.24 that it was not possible for death to hold him. That's an amazing thing. It was not possible for him to be held by it. And David predicted that he would not remain dead. In verse 27, he kind of zeroes in on this. He says, Uh, In quoting from a psalm, Psalm 16, 8 through 11 by David, uh, Peter says this, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Indeed, God raised him up, and these people were witnesses of it. This was their primary purpose, according to Acts 1.8, is that they would be his witnesses. This is the outline verse for the whole book, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And I bet you you're saying right now, I live there at the end of the earth. (laughs) But we understand that this is crucial, that he was crucified and in support, and then he was raised In support, he went to the Psalms. There's another Psalm that's cited concerning Jesus. That is Psalm chapter 2. And look what it says there. It says there, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I've begotten you. This is quoted several times in the New Testament, but the interesting thing about this verse, we think of Jesus being begotten from all eternity, that he always was of God, that he always was the Son of God, and indeed he was. Jesus is eternal. He's an eternal person of the Godhead. He was here before. He'll be here after. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega, the beginning, the end, etc., etc. But understand this, that this idea of him being begotten is connected to his resurrection. Look what it says in Romans 1.4. It says about Jesus, we'll start in verse 3 here, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So his sonship was declared, that is made knowable to us, 
at his resurrection from the dead. Now, he didn't become the Son of God at his resurrection. It was declared at his resurrection. And so the resurrection is so central in showing us that he indeed is the true Son of God. And that then pulls in all these references in the Old Testament of the Son of God. And, and then we're able to see more clearly the Christ in the Old Testament, this Son of God who comes, who is uh, shown to be the Son of God by his resurrection. The resurrection is central to all the preaching of the gospel. For if there's no resurrection, we're to be pitied, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection, interestingly though, would not even be a factor were it not for the fact that he appeared to the disciples. Notice that Jesus appeared to the disciples. In uh, Acts 2.32, it says it very plainly here, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We saw this was central to their mission as a church. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. It was the mark of a true apostles the church recognized in 122. Defining what a true apostle would be was that they would be with us from the beginning, from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up. One of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Now this is mentioned very early on and the first century creeds that we find in the New Testament, that we find attested to elsewhere, uh, these short poems or sayings that hold the central truths of the gospel, um, it's apparent in there that this is part of what we see is his appearance here. In 1 Corinthians 15, look what Paul says. Paul says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. We know that he received his gospel directly from Christ. He was an appointed apostle by Christ himself, not like the others were, but later in a different kind of way. Paul is brought to faith by the Lord in a very dramatic way. But look what he received from that. And then from this point forward in verse 3 that Christ died, this takes the form of it it seems to have been some kind of a creedal statement, a poem, something for them to memorize and make it easy to remember about the truth of the gospel. And what is it? It's that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time. Now we know through verse 5, this is part of this formula, part of, of what we're seeing here, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then it goes on. Now is verse 6 part of this? Verse 7? I don't know. Verse 8? Probably not, because then Paul turns to the subject of himself. But nevertheless, the appearance in verse 6 is part of this early, early confession of the early church. The church was saying that he appeared to people very early on, as early as 30 to 33 AD, which, as you know, is around the time Jesus was crucified. And so the appearance was very crucial. He, and we have here in Acts chapter 2, we have 120 people bearing witness to his resurrection all at the same time. And the earth starts, or the, the church starts in here, in this proclamation. This is a purposeful spreading of the truth of his resurrection. These people saw the resurrected Christ and they saw him ascend bodily in 
to heaven. And that is our next point, that in fact, Jesus ascended. It says here in Acts 2.33 that he, uh, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so he's exalted at the right hand of God. He is in heaven. And in kingly terms, we actually get our English phrase, right-hand man, from this great truth, that there is Jesus at the right hand of the Father, that in the days of old, even before the time of Christ, the idea of someone sitting at the right hand of a king meant that that person was in charge. That person was a higher authority than anything else in the kingdom, higher than everything except the king himself. We see this in Joseph. As I mentioned earlier, he was typological of Christ, and we see that he rose to the point of authority over Egypt that nothing was over him except Pharaoh himself. So what does the ascension mean to us? Well, first of all, it's an affirmation of his authority. It's an affirmation of his authority that he is above all other authorities on earth. It is with this authority that he sends his people in Matthew 28, 18, as he commissions the disciples to share the gospel, to, to share it throughout the world, to make disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so right before his ascension, he says, look, all authority has been given to me. So go and make disciples. So we go and make disciples with all authority. And we know this because he's ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's also an affirmation of his deity because who can sit in the presence of God? Who is able to administer all things of creation whatsoever? We're told he sustains all things by the word of his power, that all things are done through him and by him and for him. Who could do that? No human being could accomplish that, but Jesus is doing it right now at the right hand of the Father. He's ascended into heaven, and in doing so, he has assumed what we call the session. He is in session right now, and he's at the right hand of the power, of, of power, interceding for his people. We are heard by God because Jesus is present with him, making our things known to God. He is what's known as our advocate. He's right there in the ear of the king. We by ourselves, we have no right to speak to God, but it's by the righteousness of Christ we come. It is always in reference to the righteousness of Christ, to the privilege we have by him sitting there at his right hand in intercession that we can come to God in prayer and we can know that we are heard. The ascension together with the resurrection is essential to show that Jesus was wholly accepted by God. It was also necessary for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. I don't understand why it was necessary for Jesus to go and send the Holy Spirit. Could he not? You know, was there no remote control, you know, that he could send him while he was still here on earth? Nevertheless, it's very clear that Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this brings us to our next great truth, that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful truth this is. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
um, according to verse 33 in our passage. He's exalted the right hand of God. He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And what Peter refers to is all the activity going on that day, all the people gathered, proclaiming the glories of God, speaking in the other languages. All this is poured out by Jesus. And what is it? It is the Holy Spirit. It is the coming of the Holy Spirit that empowers all of this. And this is an interesting point that if you notice, it's very clear from the book of John, and it's very clear from this verse here that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And yet elsewhere, Jesus speaks of it as the Father sending the Holy Spirit. Which is it? It's both. <laughs> the Father sends it as he gave it to the Son. The Son, the Son in turn, pours it out on the church. And so indeed, we see that, that this is a great truth, that he sends the Holy Spirit. And this also is crucial to the gospel because this is how God saves us. See, God the Father planned our salvation Jesus secured it in the work that he did on the cross and by being raised from the dead. But this salvation is applied to us only by the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit that causes us to be born again. It is the Holy Spirit then that saves us, regenerates us as it's called. It, it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to obey God. It's the Holy Spirit that subdues our flesh and working together and striving together with the Holy Spirit. It is in that way that we are further set apart for the work of God, that we further experience victory over sin. And this is what they were waiting for. Remember, Jesus told them, you wait for the gift from the Father before going out and being my witnesses. Because this is God in us. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. And this empowers our witness. It is this that they waited for. See, the great wisdom of God is that Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he was one person in one place. But now that Jesus has ascended and the Holy Spirit has come, we are all people in every nation throughout all of history to bear witness to what we have seen. So more people have been born again by the Spirit of God than were even alive on the earth in the days of Jesus. Let that sink in for a moment. More people have become believers, that is, they have been born again by the Spirit of God since Jesus ascended than were actually even living on the earth in the day that he came. Now we'll talk much more about the Holy Spirit as we go through the book, but other than Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the main character in the book of Acts and we will give him much attention as we go through. So the next point here is uh, really two points in one and it's in verse 36. It's very simply this. Let all Israel, let all the house of Israel, Peter's summing up here, he's after all the, the argument he's made, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Did you get that? Both Lord and Christ. This is such a powerful truth. I hope you can get your mind around this because these are two titles that are powerfully important, Lord and Christ. Christ. 
Lord in your Bible, if you look at your Old Testament, you find Lord in two forms. You sometimes find it in all capitals. When it's in all capitals, that denotes the special name of God that he gave to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. It is the name Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on which side of the argument you're on or how to pronounce it. But this Yahweh, this four-letter word of the name of God, is so sacred to the Jews that they would not say it. And the other thing that the Lord is called very often in the Old Testament is Adonai, which means simply Lord. So you had his proper name Yahweh or Jehovah. You had this title Adonai, which meant Lord. And they got in the habit of when they would read the Holy Scriptures, whenever they came to Yahweh, whenever they saw that word, instead they would say Adonai. Well, then comes the Greek world and the Greek translation of the Old Testament and they translate the word Lord in either form, whether it's Yahweh or whether it's Adonai, they translated it as Kyrios. And this is what Jesus is called continually through the Gospels and through the rest of the New Testament. He is called Kyrios, Lord. Now, some scholars, some unbelieving people will come to you and say, yeah, but Kyrios was a polite term you could use for anyone in authority. And you know what? They're right. It was a polite term. You could use it of your rabbi. You could use it of anyone in authority. It was a complimentary term. But here's the difference. With Jesus, verses in the Old Testament that contain the name Yahweh are applied to him in the New Testament, thus proclaiming very clearly that this Jesus is Yahweh, Adonai. He is the Lord. He is the one that brought the people out of Egypt. He's the one that spoke through the prophets. We, we learned that all things were done through him, that he is this arm of the Lord that redeemed the people Israel. He is this arm of the Lord that worked in the, in the earth. He is the hand of God. And this truly then we see is lordship. Look what it says in verse 34 and 35 here. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I take make your enemies your footstool. This is true ruling. This is lordship. This is Jesus Christ in charge. He's at the right hand of the Father until all the enemies are defeated. It is this authority that he sends us forth to be his witnesses. He is Lord. We don't make him Lord when we believe. Look at this, how Paul says it in the book of Romans. He says, uh, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He is Lord. We do not make him Lord. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. If he is Lord, he is due obedience, and we are his servants. And if you aren't comfortable with that idea, you might not be saved. This Lord, this Lordship is so strong and so powerful. We see that as it said there in the scriptures, all things will be put under his feet. 
We're told in the book of Philippians chapter 2 that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? A good idea? A good teacher? A nice guy? No, that he's Lord. That he is absolutely, completely, and totally in charge. God made him Lord, but God also made him Christ. God also made him Christ. As we see in verse 36, he made him both Lord and Christ. Now, what does this mean? Well, the word Christ is the translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means an anointed or chosen one. And we see very clearly in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, um, that indeed he's been made Christ. In other words, to this Jewish audience, Peter is saying, this Jesus is that Messiah. He is the one and only Messiah that you heard about all through the Old Testament. And indeed, it is that Messiah uh, that, that Jesus fulfills. He becomes that role. He is that role from all eternity past. And this is part of the great confession. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, when Peter made the confession, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's why what he said was such a big deal, that he was the Christ, the anointed one, mentioned throughout the Psalms, mentioned throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. There's really too many references for me to, to give it duty because every single time that Jesus is called Christ, is a proclamation of this truth. Christ is not his last name, it is his title. And he is the fulfillment of all things in the Old Testament of the anointed one. David was typological of this. He was an anointed king himself. He was promised that one would sit on his throne forever and that one is Jesus, the final and ultimate anointed one, the one chosen by God to fulfill all these things. Well, that's a a lot of powerful truth and I hope I hope it's been edifying to you and I know we went through it fast but I gave you tons of cross references in your notes that you may take advantage of but here are my encouragements to you this day God has made him both Lord and Christ Jesus Christ must be at the center of our proclamation of the gospel whether we're proclaiming it in a video like this whether we're proclaiming it from a pulpit whether we're just simply proclaiming it to our neighbors. We have to present Jesus Christ as the center, as the point of all of this. He must be at the center. We must do Christocentric preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. Keep Jesus Christ at the center of every conversation you have with your friends who are not saved. Be, don't, don't get in arguments with them about this or that detail of church or these things, but hold up Jesus Christ as both Lord and Christ and proclaim the truth that he is due repentance and he is due faithfulness, that he deserves those things from us because of who he is. Now, my other encouragement is this. Um, I want you to be encouraged when you proclaim the gospel that there is no higher authority than Jesus Christ who sends you. Jesus Christ has been placed over all of creation. Every single thing that happens, okay, is by and through and for him. Therefore, as you go and you share the gospel with others, you have this authority. You go by his authority. Authority is not in and of yourself. It's got nothing to do with who you are or how well you behave or anything else. 
you are given the authority of Jesus Christ himself to go and proclaim the gospel. So no one can tell you not to. No one can shut you down. You will be faithful. Now, there may be consequences of what you do before people and from earthly authorities, but nevertheless, that means you have the authority to boldly say, this is what God says. This is whom he sent. We are due allegiance to him and obedience to no one else. That's a powerful truth, but I hope very encouraging to you. There is no higher authority that can tell you to do anything except Jesus to tell you to proclaim the gospel. And finally, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Christ. So therefore, if you haven't already, repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Believe in him like you believe in a chair you're willing to sit in that you would take that leap of faith, that you would put your eternal destiny in his hands because indeed it is. For by him will all the living and the dead be judged. By the words that he said, will we be judged at the end of time whether we obeyed them or not. This is powerfully important and hopefully terribly convicting that there is no other greater than Jesus Christ should cause us to realize we therefore need to put our trust in him. We need to find out what he demands of us. We need to go to him in obedience and seek his favor. Beg him for mercy and forgiveness of your sins. Forsake your sins and turn to him now while it's still a possibility. Well, that is my encouragement to you. I hope you found this enlightening. I again encourage you to use the notes and search the scriptures to see if what I've said is entirely true. And I invite you to contact us. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Father God, we praise your name and we do indeed. We worship Jesus who's higher than all things, who is the greatest authority, no other authority over him. Lord, he he paid the penalty for our sins and was raised from the dead because death couldn't hold one so perfect and one so sinless. And then he was ascended to send us the Holy Spirit, a gift we do not deserve, but a gift that empowers us, that helps us to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ and enables us to share the gospel. Lord, we are stunned by what you have done. It is magnificent, and I pray that each one of us today lift up Jesus Christ in our eyes, Lord. Help us to understand. Help us to have the faith to respond. Enlighten us as you enlightened Peter, that we would understand that he is the Christ, the Son of God. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this has been beneficial to you today. Contact us, and you can see more about us at whitethrun.org or you can contact us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. I hope you do. Looking forward to interacting with you because I answer those emails personally and I will see to it that uh, they are attended to. So take care, God bless, and uh, just enjoy knowing that there is a sovereign king in charge of the universe who has your best interest at hand.